Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, August 16, 2020. The share IDs the share IDs for Friday, August the 14th are the following for the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,156. That's 15156. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,157. That's 15157. This morning, A Vision for You presents I Can't Deceive You Without Deceiving Me. The definition of deceive is to mislead by false appearance or statement. Friends and family members of compulsive overeaters are often surprised to find themselves lied to repeatedly and habitually over and over and over again. The compulsive overeater looks them in the eyes, appearing sincere, truthful, and convincing, but a few days or weeks later, the truth comes out. Loved ones no longer know what to believe. It's unsettling, not to mention hurtful and saddening. But as personal as it feels, this dishonest and deceptive behavior isn't personal at all. For the compulsive overeater, lying is simply a natural fixture on the landscape. As Bill Wilson wrote, the deception of others is nearly always rooted in the deception of ourselves. Compulsive overeaters are not necessarily trying to deceive others, but our disease thrives in denial and self-deception. The compulsive overeater's life becomes one of fundamental dishonesty. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. The big book teaches that to get over drinking, for us compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening. Recovery requires revolutionary and drastic proposals. In order to recover, we must take some actions that will lead us into the realm of the spirit. Joining us today to speak about her remarkable transformation is Leslie W., a recovered compulsive overeater from Tennessee. Leslie is devoted to her daily spiritual way of life and is eager to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. And it's with great appreciation and always a pleasure to welcome Leslie W. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. Wow, that was, um, as always, uh, a beautiful introduction. Thank you for this opportunity, and I just want to express my gratitude before I even start to you and to uh, the other fellows um, on this line who have made this meeting possible for your devoted service. I'm grateful. 
Uh, during my story, I will often reference quotes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I will read the verbiage as written. So if you would please substitute in your minds as you listen the terms compulsive overeater for alcoholic and food for alcohol so that you may identify. Okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Leslie W. and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Tennessee. Um, I grew up in a small town in South Georgia called Vidalia, which, which is home of the Vidalia Sweet Onion, by the way. And some might say that I had a leave it to beaver home life. My, my mother stayed at home with us for most of my upbringing as she carted my sister around, my sister and I around to cheerleading practice and dance lessons and voice lessons and piano lessons. My father worked at a construction company and moved up the ranks to eventually be the CEO. We went to church several times a week. My family was well known in town because of all the community service that my dad was involved in regularly. I have a sister. She's my only sibling. She still lives in the same town that I grew up in along with the rest, all the rest of my immediate family. Every week without fail, we all gathered around the table at Meemaw's house. That's what I called my grandmother Meemaw for Sunday dinner after church. There was a lot of laughter and love and a sense of security and stability and having all of my family around me. I did not abuse food as a child that I can recall. I didn't have a weight problem growing up. My story doesn't involve being taken to the doctor to get diet pills or being put on diet by my parents. I wasn't bullied in school because of my weight. And as far as I can recall, I didn't sneak food or hide food behind my parents' back. So you may be asking yourself why I'm here today and why I'm giving this talk. It's because the deception of others is nearly always rooted in the deception of ourselves. And things aren't always as they seem. At an early age, I developed and discovered a love for music. I realized that I had a special talent for singing. By the time I was 12, I was traveling around with church groups singing solos. This talent was nurtured, and by the time I was a teenager, I had something going nearly every weekend. Singing at talent shows, school functions, town festivals, civic club meetings, funerals, weddings, pageants, Sunday school gatherings, church services, you get, you get the idea. I, I, uh, I can remember um, <laughs> being the featured entertainment at our beloved Vidalia Onion Festival year after year, I literally walked around <laughs> grassy fields with my latest rhinestone pageant crown on my head and sash around my neck. And you could find me there singing The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Reba McIntyre on the back of a flatbed trailer truck. And I laugh at this now when I think about it because it was so over the top, but this is truly what happened and this is my story. Um, my parents loved me and they were very proud of me it, and they took every opportunity to showcase and develop my talents and abilities. But what they perhaps didn't realize and neither did I was how all of this was affecting my psyche and I soon began to feel like a puppet dancing and singing and 
actually forming around town for others being driven by my desire to live up to the expectations that I felt those around me held. Not to mention what all of this did to my ego, which grew larger and larger by the day. And as I soon believed that my worth and identity was directly tied to my performance in life, as well as on the stage. Everyone else around me seemed to hold the scorecard to my happiness. If I performed well, then I felt worthy. And if I didn't, I felt unworthy. Everything was wrapped up in these accomplishments. There was a lot at stake for me, or so it felt. I felt the weight of everyone's hopes and dreams on my shoulders, not to mention my own. On one hand, I loved all the attention, while on the other, I silently resented it and just wanted to be a regular kid, but never felt that, that like I had that freedom to go out with my friends on the weekends and ride the strip, as we called it, which was the one big road that we had in town that everybody went up and down on every Friday night, honking their horns. I told myself that if I could just get out of that town, I would make it big and never look back. Like Bill W., I too thought that I'd prove to the world that I was important. The drive for success was on. That's taken from the big book, page two, in Bill's story. Once I got out in the real world, I could control my own life and destiny and be content and have to answer to no one. At the age of 17, I auditioned for a part in a show at Six Flags Over Georgia in Atlanta. They signed me on the spot for a contract to sing there consecutively each week for the next nine months with rehearsals and shows beginning in January of my high school year, of my senior high school year. My teachers allowed me to finish my high school and college prep classes remotely, and I rarely showed up for school the latter part of my senior year. I sang at Six Flags until the fall of 1997 when I graduated high school in May of 1997. And then in the fall, when my contract was up, it was time to go to college. I had a full vocal scholarship to the University of Georgia in Athens, but I had to be dragged there kicking and screaming by my parents. I didn't want to go. I had gotten a taste of living the way I wanted to on my own terms, in my own apartment, making my own money. And I didn't want my new freedom to end. I lasted only three months there in college at UGA and I dove into a deep depression and I had to leave college and come back home. I crawled back home with my tail between my legs in such shame for disappointing everyone around me. I felt that I had failed everyone and especially myself. I couldn't handle it. I was unraveling. It was during this time that I decided to go visit a great aunt who lived a few hours away to try and escape my problem. And it was during that weekend that a family member of mine detected my insecure and vulnerable state and decided to take advantage of it by molesting me. I was 18 years old, had never been sexually active before. I blamed myself. I took on this responsibility of this happening to me and I told no one 
And then two months later, when this person got married, I was scheduled to sing at his wedding, pretending like it never happened. It was there, and my soul died. And it marked the beginning of my self-hatred and self-punishment of my body. I began to be promiscuous, and I did harm to my body and my spirit by allowing myself to be used by men and to use them in return. I thought that as long as I called the shots and had the upper hand in these encounters and relationships, that they couldn't hurt me. I didn't know that I held the knife and twisted it into my own heart. I began dying a little more each day. Still, I had not yet used food as a numbing agent, somehow. During this time, I had moved back to Atlanta and obtained another scholarship to a local university. It was there that I met the man whom I would marry and still be married to to this day. We met at a jazz concert. He said that he knew I was the one he wanted to be with when he saw me for the rest of his life. But I didn't see that. I just assumed that he would be like all the rest. I planned to use him and spit him out again. But he saw through my facade. He was the first man who wasn't impressed by accolades or outside appearances. He really saw me, the real me. And it knocked me off my orbit. We fell in love and soon got married. I was 23 years old. He had everything I wanted in in a man. Ambition and good looks, determination, an appreciation for music, a faith similar to mine. And most importantly, he didn't seem to care what others thought about him. And I liked that. He marched to the beat of his own drum. He's still that way, which is a quality I admire about him to this day. We worked out a deal when we got married. (laughs) It's funny. He wanted to be an entertainment attorney, and so I was to work. The deal was I was to work and help put him through law school. And then after law school, he was to get a job at a firm while I began working on my career, which, of course, was to be a famous recording artist and star, big star. And he was going to manage me. Seemed like the perfect match and plan to me. We had big dreams and wanted to move to a big city. So after we got married, we moved to New York City. I'd never been there before in my life. He was accepted into law school at Rutgers, and off we went. I got a job working at a record label, which, of course, was one step closer to my dream, or so I thought. And I just knew and had visions of being discovered singing at the coffee machine, just like Mariah Carey. (laughs) Only it didn't happen quite like that. And life in the city was hard. I worked a lot. My husband studied a lot. And we fought a lot. But I learned to adapt. And since pretending and performing was my, my wheelhouse, I learned to act tough. I could put on a good show. But internally, I was suffering, and I was lonely. And I was beginning to nurse a resentment towards my husband for the fact that he was getting closer to his dream while I felt I was getting further away from mine. Every day that passed was like another day where I felt he owed me back the time that I had lost. The defiance was building. I started acting out and retaliating, selfish and self-centered to the extreme. It's a wonder he even graduated with all that I put him through during that time. But he finally did graduate, and then in 2002, we decided to move to Nashville. 
I got another job at a record label and while he was working at an entertainment firm, starting to make a name for himself. But by that time, I was deep in my resentment towards him and had completely victimized myself past the point of no return. We fought constantly. I had unknowingly decided to martyr myself and continue to avoid and continued to avoid my aspirations as a singer so that I could blame him for it not happening. I wasn't taking any real action to move toward my so-called pursuits of becoming a recording artist. The truth was I was afraid to fail. I was so full of fear. I was afraid I wasn't going to be good enough. And the truth was that I found it easier for me to blame him than to face up to my own fears and inadequacies. It was easier to live the lie, to go on pretending, deceiving, manipulating than it was for me to deal with myself. I had given up on my dream and felt that this was somehow my husband's fault. I continued to live in this deception and called harm to my husband because the reality in my mind was just too difficult to face. This went on for years. Lots of anger, hurt feelings, immature behavior, and threats were made during this tumultuous time, and emotions ran high. When I turned 30, I decided that having a baby was what I wanted to do next. So my husband got on board, and once again, I had a plan. The plan was to have a baby and continue running my own music marketing business, which I had established by that time. I was going to be a music mogul with a baby on my hip, darting in and out of client meetings and never skipping a beat. I was going to have it all. But once again, my plans didn't turn out as I thought they would, and life took a different turn. I had a very difficult labor and delivery, and my recovery from that was brutal. I developed infection after infection and pretty severe postpartum depression on top of that. I didn't recognize the symptoms or the warning signs. I felt like with everything else, that I had to use my willpower to snap myself out of it. How many times have I heard that? Snap out of it, Leslie. And because of my capacity to deceive and put on a good show, others around me didn't realize the full extent of my suffering, which meant that I did not get the help that I needed. Not to mention the fact that I didn't know how to ask for help. And so I continued to spiral. Enter the food. In the hospital, they brought me graham crackers and peanut butter. And in that moment, I literally felt something shift. When I ate those crackers and peanut butter, I felt a sense of ease and comfort come over me instantly, and I wanted that feeling to last. The doctor's opinion in the big book on page XXBIII states that men, quote, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, end quote. For me, I like the effect that food produced. I must have already had the markers of this disease lying dormant within my body by this time, and it was just waiting for the right moment to manifest, and manifest it did. I asked for more, and of course they brought me all that I wanted. Those peanut butter and crackers gave me solace in that hospital. And when I got home from the hospital, I continued this pattern. I didn't know it then, but I was self-medicating, 
with food. I didn't want to feel the pain I was experiencing, and I found what I thought was a good solution. I mean, what's so bad about a little excess food? It's not like I'm shooting heroin or abusing pain meds or alcohol. After all, I told myself, I'm not an addict. We don't have any addicts in our family, or so I naively thought. I can handle this. It's just food, after all. I mean, whoever heard of somebody crashing through a house or ending up in jail over a few hits of cupcake? I know I hadn't. And I've been through a rough time. I really deserve this. I just had a baby for crying out loud. No one expects for my body to bounce back immediately. No one will judge me. It was the perfect Petri dish for my disease to marinate and thrive. And just like that, the allergy, the, the allergy of the body was activated and the obsession of the mind took control. Quote, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. End quote. Big book, Doctor's Opinion page XXVIII. That quote, to me, describes the obsession of the mind. And it was off to the races with no time to waste. I soon found myself alone in a house while my husband went off to work all day, alone with a baby and my racing thoughts and anxious mind. During this time, people began bringing food to the house, platters of brownies and yeast rolls and casseroles, I soon started to find myself unable to stop eating all throughout the day. Every time I passed the kitchen, I popped another brownie or into my mouth or another bite of this or that. And when I ran out, I started to make trips to the store to pick up things that I wanted to indulge in. My mother-in-law came for a visit and told me I needed a better source of protein than what was in a Nutter Butter cookie. My husband began to write the calorie count on top of peanut butter jars and other items. He would soon start hiding food from me and finish off items before I could get my hands on them because he knew that I would overeat them. I traveled with my binge foods in case of an emergency. God forbid I couldn't risk needing them and not being able to get my hands on them right then and there. Every time I woke up during the night to feed the baby or for any reason at all, I would find myself eating again. I could not get through one night without eating myself to sleep. I would repeat this cycle over and over. The night eating was probably the ugliest form of my disease for me, as it was so secretive and elusive. I told myself that it doesn't, it doesn't count if I'm eating while no one else is around. I told myself that if no one saw me doing it, that it wasn't actually happening, and therefore would be no consequences. Talk about deception. I would wake up with such remorse every morning, determined, followed, determined, followed by a sheer will to start fresh again and another lie that this day would be different. I told myself since I was nursing, I needed the extra calories or so everyone told me. When I began to express my concern to others, about the excess weight I was gaining. They all said, take it easy on yourself. You just had a baby. It takes time to get the weight off. 
only the weight wasn't coming off. It was coming on. And it didn't take long for me to gain back the weight that I gained during my pregnancy plus some. I had gained 30 pounds during my pregnancy. And then after the baby was born, I had gained at least another 30 pounds within the course of a few months. And I admit that I was alarmed, but yet not willing to do anything about it. I knew there was a problem, but I thought that my problem was only affecting me. And since I no longer seemed to care about myself, a reason was the harm. It didn't take long either for my business to crash and burn because I could not even manage to get a shower and brush my teeth each day, much less run a business of my own. So that was a bust, and I felt I had failed yet again. Then came the catalyst to my journey to recovery. My little baby was having major tummy troubles. He was constantly crying because of the pain he was in. We were taking him back and forth to the doctor, and they couldn't figure out the problem. It became really scary, and then one day, I had a moment of clarity, and a thought struck me. The reason this baby's little digestive system isn't working properly, Leslie, is because you are exclusively breastfeeding him, and he cannot process all of the junk you're pumping into him. At this point, I hardly ate a vegetable. French fries were what I considered to be vegetables and pizza sauce. And sugar-free ice cream was healthy because it was sugar-free, which meant I could eat as much of it as I wanted to, right? And there was milk in that, right? Milk has calcium. Peanut butter has protein, not, not to mention the fact that I could go through a jar of it in one or two days. That doesn't matter. I was crazy. I mean, I could rationalize eating just about anything at any time and in any amount. I soon developed ways of hiding my habits, such as eating in the car and tossing the wrappers in a large trash bin outside so that my husband wouldn't find it, which he eventually did. I hid food in my nightstand and under my bed. I dug food out of the trash a couple of times in a fit to get rid of it, only to go back to it later. I became obsessed with the scale. I would weigh myself several times a day. There was not a scale that I could avoid jumping on, no matter where I was or what I was doing. I would eat something and then weigh myself moments later to see if I had gotten away with eating it. I never learned to vomit. However, I did learn to restrict. And in a year or two, my disease would prove itself pliable by morphing into an anorexic phase, when all I ate were Ritz crackers, gummies, and then the occasional salad. I enjoyed that phase because I got lots of compliments on my weight loss from others telling me how great I look. Little did they know what I was doing to achieve it. Again, deception. I knew I needed help, but where to go and what was I to do? Enter Overeaters Anonymous. When I went to my first OA meeting, I went to my first OA meeting in 2010. And I instantly knew I was in the right place. But at the same time, I was so dishonest that I couldn't accept that I was a compulsive overeater. Or that I was able to do the things necessary to recover. I would say things to myself like, well, I don't weigh 300 pounds like some of these people in here, so I must not be a real compulsive overeater. Or these older women in here, they got all the time to work this program, but I don't because I have a baby and they don't have any young kids at home. They can't possibly understand my situation or relate to me. In more about alcohol, eh, in more about alcoholism on page 30, it states, most of us have been unwilling to admit 
we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think that he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker, end quote. For me, that manifested as denial and diets, pills and personal trainers, nutrition courses, and self-help books. It took me a long time to even acknowledge that I had an illness to begin with. I originally thought it was a made-up excuse for weak-willed people to grab onto who couldn't control their gluttonous behavior. I was so judgmental and self-righteous. And on top of that, I already thought that I had taken steps one, two, and three from the get-go. And here was my reasoning behind that. I'm sitting in a meeting, which must mean that I've taken step one. I, if I'm sitting here, I must admit that I'm powerless. Step two, I've been going to church all my life, and I'm active in the church. I've been saved and baptized, which must mean that I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. There you go. Steps one, two, and three, all taken at the first meeting. Boom, done, next. Give me the magic pill. Give me the magic food plan, the magic answer. Tell me how I can get rid of this little food problem, and I'll be done and out of here. All of you may want to be sitting here week after week ruminating over your problems, but not me. I got better things to do. As soon as I get to step 12, I'll be fixed, and I'll blow this popsicle stand. That was my thinking. That was my plan. And I think we all can see now how my plans have worked. Instead, my life actually began to get worse at first, not better, because now I had heard the solution in those meetings. Excuse me, now I had heard the truth in those meetings. I was being confronted with a much bigger problem. I had heard that I had an illness and that I wasn't simply a weak-willed person. And while this was a welcome relief, it meant that I then had to concede that I could not pull myself out of this by my own willpower. I had to have help outside of myself. If I truly had this thing, I was not going to be able to pretend or perform my way out of it. I had also learned that there were certain substances that my body had an abnormal reaction to, and that once consumed would set off an uncontrollable craving in me. This fact was undeniable. Meanwhile, my husband was growing increasingly resentful that I was spending so much time in these meetings and not getting anywhere. I had not yet found the willingness to do what was required of me to get better, nor did I see any evidence around me that it truly worked. What I had not yet heard was that one could recover from this illness. After all, if all I can do is white-knuckle my way through life by swearing off my binges and my binge foods, hoping to get through the day without diving into my kids' Halloween candy or breaking out into a cold sweat every time I'm within distance of a trigger food, then what kind of existence is that, I thought? What kind of freedom is there in that? Having to live this way seemed worse to me than anything. A, low, a life of low-level misery and despondency, dieting my way through life, controlled by the fear of a donut jumping into my mouth. I reached the point where I didn't want to continue fighting it anymore. 
As Bill stated in Bill's story from Big Book, page six, the courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. End quote. Thoughts began to enter my brain. Like, what if I drove off this curb right now? Would I survive it? And then finally one night, while I was considering drowning myself in a bathtub, because I felt my family would be better off without me, my higher power broke through with this message. I heard these words in my head. God said to me, if I count every hair on your head, surely I care about the food on your plate. Up until this point, I had given up on God helping me. I thought he could care less about me and that he had written me off as a lost cause. I didn't think he cared about what I said myself, but I was wrong. I struggled for five years, week after week, going to face-to-face meetings and never becoming entirely abstinent and never getting past step seven. I wasn't really abstinent from all of my binge foods and binge behaviors during that time, even though I thought it was. What I was actually doing was dieting with group support, as we often talk about in the room. As long as I went to my regular meeting week after week and didn't have any binge foods in the house, I thought it was safe. But then we moved. We moved to a different city, and I lost that support network, and I unraveled. My my disease came back, and this time, perhaps it never left, right? This time I was in full-blown restriction mode and having anxiety attacks every week, multiple times a week. I could barely function. I had a two-year-old and living in a new city where I knew no one and had no support, and my connection to my higher power had not yet been fully developed. I was dependent upon human power. But the big book says on page 60, quote, no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, end quote. My husband and I started fighting again. I eventually got some help from a church counselor and found another face-to-face meeting and started going to it in the new city, which I lived in. I began to find my footing again, once again renewing my resolve to beat this thing. Things went well for a time. I had another baby in 2014, and 15 months later, I was back in relapse. And my husband sat me down at our kitchen table and hit me with a bombshell. He said he no longer wanted to spend time with me. He no longer felt attracted to me. And that he didn't like the person I had become. He said he would stay in the marriage out of mere obligation. And then that was it. When he said this, I felt such intense hatred, shame, and anger towards him. I can't even describe it. At the time, I thought we could never come back from that moment or that I would ever see any good from that conversation. But today, I can honestly say that I'm glad that he was so brutally honest with me because it turned out to be the catalyst which which changed everything. His declaration of distrust in me, his apathy towards me, His frustration combined with the realization that I was losing my husband for good or perhaps had already lost him 
was enough to force me to take a good, hard look at the state of my affairs. And it was at that point that I made a decision. I could keep living like a victim and divorce my husband and carry the same junk with me into my next relationship, or I could own up to my part in this and pray like I've never prayed before. Pray for God to do the impossible and restore my marriage. And so I did. I won't spend too much time on this because I have already discussed it in depth during another special edition that I gave on the Family Afterward panel in May of 2017. But what I will say is that God did for me here what I could not do for myself. I I never could have done this. That was the beginning of my faith being rebuilt. And the next thing I knew as this was occurring, God led me to this phone meeting called A Vision for You. I simply stumbled upon it. The first thing I heard on the line were people calling themselves, quote, recovered. This one little word, once I understood the meaning, gave me hope. It gave me a reason to go on, to continue. I was hooked. It was on this line, on this phone meeting, that I truly heard the solution to my problem in the pages of the big book and from the mouths of those who were recovered and truly living out the principles as outlined. I heard clarity. I heard consistency, and I heard the truth, and I began to recover. At that time, I did not get a new sponsor, but instead, I allowed the people on the line to teach me and work with me. And after getting honest, brutally honest with myself about my abstinence, I finally became entirely abstinent in the spring of 2016 and recovered by the fall. I let the big book be my sponsor and God be my guide. I'll admit this is not the typical path, but this is just what happened to me. After being involved in a vision for you for at least a year or so in sponsoring and giving service, I began to feel a strong nudge from God to develop more structure and boundaries around my program in order to protect my abstinence and recovery. It was it was a pro- progression and a deepening. The way that I did that was to obtain a sponsor, and I began speaking with her daily and decided to work the steps again to deepen my level of freedom from this disease. This allowed me to have genuine consistency in my life which was something that I lacked, along with a greater sense of relief, accountability, and neutrality. I am grateful for my journey, and I'm learning each day to listen more for God's voice to speak to me and through me. I am learning to rely less on human power and rely more on the divine. I utilize the resources that my higher power gives me and obey when I hear a clear thought come through on how to move forward in my recovery or in my life on decisions and steps to take. I don't always know what to do, but the big book tells me on page 87 that, quote, what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God 
it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. It goes on to say, nevertheless, we find our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it, end quote. I am slowly but surely finding my voice again. God has placed new dreams in my heart. I don't know what the future holds, but what I do know is that I no longer want to run the show. I no longer want it to be about my little plans and designs. I want to be of maximum service to God and the people about me, which the big book tells me on page 77 is my real purpose. Whatever that looks like, God only knows. The promises in the big book that seemed so elusive to me for so long have finally become true for me. They are being fulfilled, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they will always materialize if I work for them. Big book, page 84. (sighs) With that, Leah, I think I'm done. Thank you so much, Leslie, for your profound and inspiring story of transformation. Thank you for offering such a message of hope and possibility to all of us on the line. Share ID for Leslie's presentation this morning, 15,164. That's 15164. Leslie's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Leslie by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name, please. Courtney Ginger M. T. Liz S. M. Ginger C. Cerise. Cerise. Liz, your initial, please. Uh, S as in Sam. Great. Anyone else in this group? Okay, so let's get started. Courtney M., your turn. Thank you. Um, Courtney M., recovered compulsive overeater in Southwest Florida. Thank you. Uh, That was such a wonderful share today. Thank you so much for doing that service, Leslie. And you you hit on so many points that just really made me uh, sit up and take attention. One of the the things that I would like to ask you, because I know that you have, you know, young kids, um, I do too, what is it that you are doing um, to balance your service to your fellows um, with your family life? Are you choosing to only take on so many sponsees? What does that look like for you? Hey, Courtney. Thank you for that question. That is a really good question. Um, I have truly struggled with this, and, you know, I'm a person of extremes. So when I first found recovery, true recovery, um, I just was so zealous and excited to do as much as I could. Um, And, you know, I didn't balance it very well in the beginning, let's just say that. I caused some harm with my husband because I was constantly on the phone and, um, and it was hard for him. You know, he, he just felt so, um, 
um, deprioritized, let's say. So I surround myself with other mamas um, who are recovered and can advise me on how to do this because it's, it's really, you know, we're, we're all at different phases of life in our recovery. And I would say that the number one thing that's important for me to realize is that, you know, my journey is not going to look like everybody else's and my level of service is not going to look like everybody else's. I cannot afford to compare my program with someone who say is retired or maybe doesn't have any kids or, you know, their kids are grown and they're out of the house. I don't know. You know, all I know is that for me, practically speaking, um, the basic things that I have to do to maintain my spiritual condition and maintain my recovery is I have to talk to a sponsor every day and commit my food, um, do some reading and writing. Um, I, I have to sponsor at least one person. I don't, I don't need, this is not the time for me to win the sponsoring competition. Um, really two sponsees is all I can handle right now because I talk to them every day. Um, and, I, and I do have two little kids and they are home all the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, everybody's pulling on you. Mommy, 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 mommy. Wife, 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 wife. So, you, you know, there is, you do have to prioritize and figure out, okay, so what's important for me? What's really important for me? And I'll have to tell you that I have had to pull back on other responsibilities so that I can place my recovery first. Um, other church responsibilities or, you know, I've had to pull back on or maybe not being the first person to raise my hand when the teacher asks who wants to be the room mom. You know, like those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about because my personality tends to want to, you know, I want I want to be I want to be up front and center, right? I want to I want to show others and prove to others how great I am. So I have to be very very careful about this aspect, and I'm happy to talk more about it offline with you if you if you'd like. Thanks. Thank you, Courtney M, for your question, Ginger C. Morning. Good morning, Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. And Leslie W., beautiful job, really. So much was shared this morning with you and God. And I just want to give a huge shout-out to you, Leslie, too. A lot of people probably don't know. You know, there's so much service going on behind these lines. And you saw the importance, and you were just talking about it, about these families and being a mom and raising young kids. And you started a support group for many, and they've gotten so much from that. So, Anyone wanting some more mommy help, call Leslie W. because she was uh, the engine behind that. And it's amazing what you've done with service uh, doing page 77. But my question to you is, do you think behaviors, you mentioned them beautifully today in your talk, is dishonesty, deceit. Can this be as slippery as the food? And with that, I pass. Mm, Ginger, thank you. My goodness. I'm so humbled. Um, yeah, uh, heck yeah. You know, I, I actually had a harder time being honest with myself about the behaviors, um, especially, you know, for me, it was like eating off my kids' plate, snacking and grazing in between my meals, 
and eating during the night. I would eat all during the night and then eating in front of the television um, as a companion. You know, it was really, it was really slippery for me with those things. And I would find little tricky ways to, you know, um, get around that. Like I could eat up until midnight, but anything after midnight is considered breaking my (laughs) abdomen. Or I would say things like, um, you know, I can still have the TV on, like, in the background, but as long as I'm not right in front of it, you know, it's okay. I'm not really breaking my absence. My capacity to be deceptive is uncanny and lie to myself and lie to others, and I... I really, that's where the accountability part of it shows up for me. Um, you know, I, I, I really have to be honest and accountable to someone, another fellow compulsive overeater um, who has recovered and gone through this process and can hear when I am, um, you know, as I say, pussyfooting around and not wanting to like deal with what's actually happening, you know, deal with the reality of the situation. Um, it's got to be black and white for me, you know. My food has to be black and white. My behaviors have to be black and white. I cannot have any gray areas. I cannot have any yellow lights. I cannot have any of that. There has to be pretty strict boundaries around what I can and can't do and what I can and can't eat. Thank you, Ginger C. Liz S., your turn. Hi, did you call Surrey C.? Actually, Liz S., star one to unmute, Liz. Well, Suri, let's go with your question at this point. Thank you. Suri C. Um, Okay, so, wow, thank you so much for your share. Um, So my first question um, was actually about um, how do you you stay right-sized? Because it seems like so much of um, your story was about seeing yourself different than you were. So... Um, and, and something like even just getting a compliment the way that Ginger C just gave, um, would throw me off, um, and throw me into the food cause you know, I'm at so wrong size. So, um, how do you do that? And then, uh, I guess also, um, the compulsive food behaviors that you just spoke of, um, I, that's, how do you, I guess if you have any ideas about that as well, cause that's my main area of struggle is the behaviors. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Suri. So I'll address that first part um, of your question. How do I stay right sized? Um, <laughs> working this program helps me stay right sized because, because this is it's this is not working a program well, it's not hard. 
I mean, it's simple, but yet it's what I'm saying is it takes work, you know, it's not rocket science, but it does take effort and it does take work. And every single day when I make my phone calls or I put my food on the scale or I read my nightly inventory and I see where I've been resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid, um, or I'm in a meeting telling my story, you know, all of those things keep, keep me right sized. And then I also give credit where credit is due. You know, um, God has done all of this for me. My God has saved me and restored me. And I don't want to be cliche and, and say the things like, everybody says, but at the same time, I do want to always credit where credit is due. I don't, I don't want to take any credit for myself. Um, I am a vessel used by God. That's it. I am a conduit. Um, did I work for it? Yeah. Of course I worked for it. I worked really hard to get to where I am today. But I didn't do it on my own. You know, I didn't do it by my own will. I didn't I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. You know, um if I could have relieved myself of this compulsion of this disease, you know, I would have. Um and if I were in charge of the universe, then everything would go according to my plan. But it doesn't. Life continually presents me with new challenges each day that remind me that I am not the one in charge. Um, and so, you know, staying, staying right-sized um, sponsoring also helps me to stay right-sized, um, you know, because I'm hearing the things that – I'm hearing them say the things that have gone through my head, you know. I'm hearing them do the things that I've done. And teaching is the best form of learning. So I'm continually learning each day. Um, how to be the person that God intends for me to be. Um, and, you know, and that's it. Um, as far as the other question that you asked, uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, how do I deal with the behaviors? Um, maybe you could rephrase that, Suri, because I'm not quite sure that I got that. Um, um, in terms of the compulsive food behaviors that you were starting to list in terms of, um, you know, eating right. past 12 o'clock or, you know, when you're with family. Um, and I just find that my compulsion, like I don't have any green light food, not one. I could overeat anything, um, even if it's a healthy food. So it's more about okay. the behavior. So how does that, okay. how did you find 
you know, how do you work that program? Um, well, you know, once again, I, you know, I, I have to have boundaries around my compulsive eating and my compulsive eating behaviors. And what that means for me in terms of my food itself is that um, I follow a food plan, simply uh, follow that food plan um, uh, that has been written for me by a nutritionist. Um, and I don't want to get into specifics about what I eat or what I don't eat or all of any of that stuff. Um, but, but I do have to have clear boundaries of the amounts that I'm supposed to, that I need to take. Um, and that's why I weigh and measure. As far as the behaviors go, like that, that is something that has been really tricky for me. And, you know, that is something that I'm accountable to my sponsor for. And I let her know what those behaviors are. Um, and, you know, another recovered compulsive overeater can call you out pretty quickly when you're, when you're not being honest about what you're doing. And they, you know, they can spot it pretty easily. So that's why we need each other, and that's why we need that to me. I mean, for me, um, that's why I need that accountability. And I, I can't if – I'm, if I'm finding myself here, – here's an easy litmus test. If I'm finding myself rationalizing and justifying my need to do something or to have something, that, that means that – there's some dishonesty somewhere. Um, and that, that is how I know, right? Because, because if it's not a problem for me, then here you go. I'll put it on a silver platter for you to take. God bless. Be well. <laughs> but if it's not, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that. I'm going to hold on to that and I'm not going to let you have it. It's mine. Don't take it from me. It's going to have my claw marks on it. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Suri, for the questions. Who else has a question for Leslie? Star one to unmute. Mary Kay. Loretta, Loretta H. Kathy K. Danielle J. Cheryl A. Courtney M. Sam S. Okay, here's who I've got. Larry K., Loretta H., Kathy K., somebody J. Danielle J. Danielle, thank you. Carol A., Courtney M., Sam S. That's a great list. Everybody mute, please, except for Larry. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Leah. Leslie, right now, he's probably slow dancing. <laughs> hey, Leslie, thanks. <laughs> We're not a going lot, right? I just bust that up. I don't know the lyrics. That was good, Larry. That was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping my day job. Um, Leslie, what a beautiful, what a beautiful way to carry the message. And um, it's so, so wonderful to hear your story. It offers such hope. My question is, um, relative to your family, in particular your husband, you know, how has programs specifically helped you to deal with some of the natural insecurities that we can have as human beings? Um, has program helped you with that, and, and how so specifically, if that makes sense? 
Yeah. Um, how has program helped me deal with the insecurities related to my husband? Yeah. You know what? This has been, um, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked me because I had to really dig into uh, the family afterwards. Um, and I had to learn how my condition affected him. Um, there were a lot of prayers that I prayed for him uh, during this during this particular time back in 2015 um, that the wheels kind of just fell off for us and he drew the line and said he was you know he was done um, you know I I still run into that insecurity sometimes um, there are times when you know he does does push back on me and um there there are instances where that that this that insecurity um and that fear will come out and i have to to look at that you know um am i am i treating my husband with love and respect um am i being tolerant towards him um Am I being loving? Am I being kind? Um, I did a lot of damage, you know? I mean, and that's just the truth. And for a long time, I didn't want to face up to that. I didn't want to deal with that. Um, and and the fact of the matter is that it, it just takes time. My actions have to speak louder than my words. He doesn't care about my good intentions. <laughs> Um, and he'll tell you that, like Leslie can talk until she's blue in the face, but until she puts her money where her mouth is, I ain't buying it. Um, he's very much a realist and a skeptic and, you know, he's the complete opposite of me because he, he really is, you know, super, um, honest and blunt about his feelings and where he is and, you know, and I, I tend to kind of dance and walk around the bush a gazillion times before I actually, you know, do something. Um, so I find that program has helped me in this area because it has taught me how to communicate with my husband honestly from the get-go. Most of the problems I've created between my husband and I have been because I wasn't honest with him, because I deceived him and I manipulated him. Um, not necessarily on purpose, but, you know, as Leah said in her introduction, that's the nature of the disease. Um, it thrives in denial and deception. And I simply couldn't handle um him being disappointed in me god forbid you know because all of my identity was wrapped up in what he thought about me and that's a very dangerous thing to do is give people that much power um and i i gotta say that thank you god you know it's come such a long way i mean this was a man who once told me that he couldn't stay married to 
me if I had to go to Overeaters Anonymous for the rest of my life to, oh, you're speaking on a special edition? That's great. I'm really proud of you. What do you need? I'll keep the kids. What? Excuse me? Oh, baby, you're turning 40. Let's go to Italy for your birth, for your 40th birthday. I, I want to take you to Italy. Like, I can't even tell you. It's not, I wish, I, you know, I, I, I wish to say that it was all bliss and butterflies, but the truth is that it's been a lot of hard work and we've gone through, you know, so much together and we've grown up together. Um, and I've learned that, that he's not my emotional end all be all. That's probably the biggest gift that this program has given me in terms of my relationship with my spouse is that I now have a network and now I have fellows to take this crap to. And I don't have to, you know, I don't have to dump it all on him all the time and expect for him to solve all of my problems because that's not fair. That's not fair to him. Um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate that question, Larry. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Larry Kay. Loretta H., your turn. Leah and Leslie, the girls of love, thank you so much. This is Loretta H., compulsive overeater, anorexic, graced with God's absence, and recovered for today. Leslie, your relationship with your husband, and Larry probably, you answered it with Larry's question, are... I met my husband at 23 also, and you always talk about, and I use this all the time, not taking my husband's spiritual temperature. And I just wanted to, how do you, and you did expound on it, but how do you do that daily? I I do do the ideal relationship thing, but sometimes he gets in my face and I want to murder him, not, you know, not really but and how do you like when that happens I know I'm supposed to use the right program and I do but sometimes I just have to like it it happens in a 10 step again and again and again so I just want to know how you don't react sometimes to something he says that is his truth and I can't take it at the moment and with that, I pass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Thank you so much. Um, once again, this is a learned behavior. Um, I wish, you know, I wish I could sit here this morning and say to you, um, "Well, I, I, I never, I never respond rashly um, or inappropriately to my husband." <laughs> but the truth is, you know. Um, that he does get under my skin, and I get under his. I mean, we know how to push each other's buttons. I've been with this man for over half my life. So, you know, um, he, we are two type A um, driven, passionate people, and we can, we can really get into some, some, some heated, uh, passionate arguments. So really the the best thing that I've learned to do in these situations is, um, you know, I will look at him and I will, 
I had to practice this. I mean, I, I didn't do I didn't do it perfectly. I I didn't I couldn't do it perfectly from the start. But but I would I would look at him. I would look at him and I will say, um, I'm having trouble hearing you right now, and I I, I need I, I need to hit the pause button for just a couple of minutes, you know, and come back to this. Um, can you just give me a minute? You know, I, I'm really careful with that that wording because what I don't want to do is just storm out of the room, you know, because that's what I used to do. Like I used to run and hide and avoid those kinds of situations. Um, and I don't want to do that anymore. I would either do one of two things. I would run away and hide and cower. Or I would get right back up in his face and start screaming right back at him. And he's an attorney, so he can verbally outmatch me any day of the week. So I don't, I have just, I have just made a decision not, not to get in the ring with him. Um, I, I tell myself, you know, Leslie, you, you have no business getting into the ring with him and going toe to toe with him. Um, so just don't, you know, when you're, just to give you this analogy, when people are playing tennis, um, they have to hit the tennis ball into the other side of the court. It, it's not really so much fun if the other person on the other side of the court does not return the ball. That's kind of how I have to look at our arguments. Like, if he tosses a ball at me, um, am I going to hit it back to him? Because if I do, it's going to keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it won't go anywhere productive. Um, so, you know, and and um, I, because I'm the addict and I'm the one that's in, in program, um, I have to be the one to put down my racket and walk away or I have or, and take a step back or I have to be the one to, to, to put down my boxing gloves and not get in the ring with him. His experience has shown me that when I do get in the ring with him and I do hit that ball back to him, that um, it it's not pretty and it doesn't end well. And um, I just, you know, I've ceased fighting anyone or anything at this point, and I just, I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, I've lived long enough with my husband fighting him, and I just don't want to fight him anymore. You know, there are certain things that I will stand on my, I will stand on and I will, you know, take a stance on and say, no, this is, you know, this is my position on this and, and this is how I feel about it. And, and, and there are a lot of times where we, we don't agree on things, but there is a genuine mutual respect there that exists today that did not exist before. And the most important thing is that that I take ownership and responsibility of my part and my stuff. Because in most situations where we fight, I can, I can, I did have a part in it. Like I can see where I set the ball rolling and I can see, you know, where I could have done things differently. And a lot of times I can't see that in a, in a 10th step. There's, for me, there's a lot of things that, um, that are deeper than like, let's say, you know, my husband, my husband left his dirty socks on the floor, whatever, and I'm resentful. Like, a lot of times, I there is something else that's going on. There's a deep, deep, 
deep-seated resentment there that is popping up for me all day long, every day, and, and things bug me, get on my nerves, and I have to be like, what, what is really going on here? Like, what am I really afraid of here? Or what am I, what part of self has been threatened and where's the resentment? Because there's always a resentment in there somewhere. And I really just have to, it's my responsibility to dig deep and find it. And it's, it's a practice. It's just a practice. It's something that I have to do over and over and over again because it doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come naturally to me to, to, to step away and pause and, you know, act like an adult. <laughs> so, hope that helps. Thank you, Loretta H. Kathy K. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you, Leslie W. It was so good to hear you today, and I identify with so many parts of your story. I am thinking right now about early in your story when you talked about your ambition and what it meant to you, and um, you you referenced Bill's story. And I certainly identified with that a lot when I got to program and now many years later I am retired and I still find myself asking the question am I doing enough am I helping enough am I using my skills and talents enough and I can be very self-critical and I'm just wondering if that is something you wrestle with, and if so, how you deal with it. Yeah. Hey, Kathy. So good to hear your voice this morning. Um, thank you. Yeah, of course. I I wrestle with that. You know, I wrestle with: Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I am I enough? You know, it it's a question that uh, on most of my inventories. You know, it's a common fear that I have. Um, it's a common thread that I see all throughout my life with with my marriage, with my friendships, with my program and the level of service I give, with my parenting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I see it in every aspect of my life. And I guess that for me, Asking myself that question, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Um, I just have to look at the evidence around me. Because I can get in my head really quickly and get self-absorbed about my um, tasks. I'm very task-oriented. I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a go-getter and I like getting things done and getting things accomplished and um, having something to show for it. Um, I think that's why being a stay-at-home mom has been so difficult for me because a lot of times at the end of the day, there's like, I don't know, I really don't know what I have to show for my day. It's like, it's like other than, you know, hey, kept the kids alive. Woohoo. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I do – I do have that, you know, question sometimes that comes up in my head, you know, am I where God wants me to be? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I enough? And then 
I, that self-doubt starts to creep in and I start, I find myself starting to go to people and human power for that validation. And that's, that's usually the point that I know I'm in trouble because, because I'm not, um, listening and to, to what my higher power, to what God is telling me. And I'm not looking at the evidence around me. So the evidence around me to me is, you know, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I enough? Like, no, you know, I, I guess I'm, I, the answer for me is maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not doing enough. You know, maybe I'm just doing the best that I can. And maybe that is enough. You know, I'm never going to be perfect. I am going to make mistakes. There are going to be times when my husband is disappointed in me. There are going to be times when my kids are disappointed in me. There are going to be times that I let people down. There are going to be times that I step in it and I say the wrong thing or I do the wrong thing. It's just the wrong, just the right moment, you know. But, but what is my life like? I look around and I think, you know, can I lay my head on the pillow at night? And honestly say that I don't hate anybody or that I don't resent anybody? Can I look myself in the eye, in the mirror, and like myself? Because I do like myself. I do like who I am today. Um, you know, I, I have to look at the evidence around me. I look at my relationships. Are my relationships good? you know, um, and, and are they healthy? Do I, do I, um, do I feel a sense of peace, you know, in my spirit? Maybe not every minute of every day, certainly not every minute of every day, but you know the difference. I mean, you know, if you know the difference between living being propelled by self and self-will and living for others because there's a different motivation. There's a shift. There's a spiritual experience that happens. And, you know, um, I, I just, I, there's a lot of days where I, I just have to be, you know, I'm learning to be content <laughs> with with my limitations. I have limitations as a human being. I just do. I just do. There's you know, and so um I have to make sure that the only person, the only entity that I look to to gain my identity and approval and validation has to be my higher power. It has to be. It can't be my husband. It can't be my kids. It can't be my sponsor. It can't be my fellows. It can't be any of those people. And if I do that, and it's difficult, but if I, if I do that by submitting and surrendering, then I don't have to ask myself that question quite so much. Um, and with that, I, I think I'm going to pass. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah.
Yes, thank you, Kathy Kay. Danielle J., your turn. Hi, Danielle J., compulsive overeater. Um, thank you so much, Leslie, in so, so many ways. Uh, my question is, uh, were, did you find yourself uh, deceptive as a child? Uh, were you lying then, too? Or did that uh, begin as an adult? Thank you. Yeah, I I mean, I'm sure all children are deceptive to a degree, right? Um, but I don't remember sneaking stuff, hiding stuff, stealing stuff. Um my deception came more in my adolescent years when um, I felt that pressure to perform. You know, I I started compromising my integrity to placate those around me. Um, and I also, you know, I lied to myself, really, by thinking I could handle all of these things that obviously – that were being thrust my way and being put into my lap, but I, I just, I just couldn't. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to handle it. Um, so I faked it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it developed over time. It wasn't. It, it really started in my adolescence. Yep. Mhm. Thank you, Danielle, Jay, Carol A. Your turn. Carol A, star one to unmute. Okay, perhaps she had to move on. Courtney M. This is Courtney M. I'm a compulsive overeater in Richmond, Virginia. And Leslie, I feel, well, first of all, Leah, uh, you're starting this meeting, has given me an anchor for every day of my life, and I really, really appreciate it. And Leslie, um, you were kind enough to have coffee with me when I was traveling um, because I'd heard you and was so impressed with everything you've said. So I appreciate both your services uh, more than you'll ever know. But Leslie, I wanted to ask you if you could shine a light on the point at which you stopped using um, this program, this fellowship, as a diet program with support and really felt that neutrality. Um, I know it has to do with with a connection with my higher power, and often I don't have a problem. But I do find that, that I still think of this as a diet of restriction, and, uh, you know, I still have a pull and the other thing is that, you know, in the big book it says we eat or we drink for the effect of ease and comfort. I find that even when I'm eating abstinent food, when I take that first bite, I do have that feeling of ease and comfort. Am I supposed to feel guilty about that? I pass. Hey, Courtney. <laughs> hey. It was such hey. a pleasure. Yeah, I really, uh, really thank you for your question and, you know, and for your, um, for your friendship. Um, you know, what point did I stop looking at this as a diet? Um, the, I stopped dieting with group support when I came to A Vision for You. Um, 
you know, I didn't realize that I was dieting with group support. Like I didn't, I didn't know that that's, that that's what I was doing. Um, but I didn't have a strong, solid foundation in my recovery. I didn't have a strong, solid connection with my higher power. Um, I was still trying to control it, you know, like I was still trying to manipulate my food and my weight according to what I wanted. Um, And, you know, I finally got to the point where I realized that I don't, I had lost the right. I had, I had lost the right to call the shots anymore in my life, especially with my food. Um, you know, I, I don't make decisions today about my food alone any, any longer, meaning I'm accountable to someone for what I eat, um, what goes in my mouth. And, um, you know, I need, I just, I just need that, you know, that's, that's, some people don't need that level of accountability. But I, I do. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, having clear boundaries around my food in terms of amounts and, and such, um, of course, given to me by a nutritionist, I, I don't decide what, how much I should eat. That's not, that decision is not up to me. Um, that that gives me freedom. You know, I I don't look at it. I don't see it as restriction. Um, I see it as medicine. You know, if my food plan is given to me by my nutritionist, as long as it's free from my binge foods, um, then you know. I know what I have to do. I have my script. I have my medicine. And that's what I give to myself each day. That's the gift that I give to myself each day. That's the gift that God has God has placed this program and these people in my life, these re, these wonderful resources in my life. You know, I think about the people who have gone before me in my family who, who haven't had this, who haven't had this opportunity. And they really suffered, but I don't have to, you know. And so um, that's when I stopped looking at it as a diet was when was when I I heard the recover I heard people speak on this line, and I heard the clarity and the sanity and the calmness that they seem to have around them and around their food. Um, and I want, I just, I wanted that. And I was persistent with, 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 you know, calling people and I pursued them and I asked them the people that I heard talking on the line that I felt like had what I wanted. I would call them and I asked, I would ask them how, what are you doing? Like, how did you get to where you are? You know, I got to a point of complete, complete and utter um, surrender where I just wanted to be told what to do. Like, just tell me what to do. I, I, I'm done trying to figure this out. And as far as, you know, enjoying my food, you know, I, like, I do enjoy my food. I'm not going to lie. When I wake up in the morning 
and I'm like, I'm looking forward to my oatmeal, right? Like, you know, I, I like my food. I do. I don't think there's anything, me personally, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying my food. There is a difference for me, for enjoying my food and being lit up like a firecracker. You know, I could tell, I can tell when something touches my tongue and it lights me up, you know, <laughs> like all the lights start flashing, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, what, you know, what is this? You know, it's, it, it excites me, right? Um, there's a difference between enjoyment and, um, and like excitement, you know, because uh, something is, is really, um, really activating or triggering that allergy for me. Um, and, and sometimes, sometimes it can be hard to differentiate it if you're early on in recovery. But once you have been abstinent for some time, I think, I think then it becomes clear. Um, and um, I'm happy to talk more with you offline if you want. That's, that's it. Thank you, Courtney M. And just under the wire here, we have Sam S. with a question. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Leslie, for your service. My question for you today is, can you talk a little bit about setting boundaries uh, between, uh, you know, when it's, when it's mom and wife time versus when it's program time? Is this kind of how you use the program to develop those boundaries and the ones you have today? Thank you. Hey, yeah. Um, so early on, um, there were no boundaries for me because I'm not good at setting boundaries, obviously. Um, so I was, I was on the phone all the time with people, all the time, all day long, from morning till night, you know, just talking to people. And, and I got a hit off of helping people and feeling like I was, you know, doing some good in the world. Um, you know, but I was ignoring the needs of my family. It's a lot easier for me to deal with strangers and fellows than it is my own family <laughs> a lot of times. Um, but the big book tells me that the home is, is the place where I must practice these principles first. Um, otherwise, guess what? I'm being deceptive again, right? I'm being one way at home with my family members and then putting a smile on my face and pretending with my fellows. So I have to be really careful. I do have boundaries around it. I get up early before anybody else in my household wakes up. And I think that if you talk to most people who have, you know, good recovery in this program, that they will tell you that they do the same thing, you know, from, I have to do that. I have to get up. You know, most mornings I'm up by like, I would say by 530. Some people are up even earlier than that. <laughs> and they know who they are. And I don't know how they do it. But, um, you know, that, that's for me the key um, is, is waking up early, calling my sponsor early, um, having, my, having my prayer time. Um, figuring out what I'm going to eat for that day. And I try to get my calls in, you know. Um, I try to call people 
um, other fellows in this fellowship and just just connect with them. Um, and you know, I don't I don't do it perfectly. Obviously, I mean, there are some mornings when you know my six year old will wake up at like I don't know six o'clock or six o'clock in the morning or whatever, and um and and it changes. You know, um, it's fluid. Like like when they start back school, you know, I don't, if they start back school, you know, that's, that'll be, it'll be another, it'll be a little bit of, you know, a little bit different. And I, I have to be willing to, um, you know, work my program at any cost, at any cost. Um, and when I say at any cost, I mean at any cost to me, you know, it may mean that I get a little less sleep sometimes. It may mean that I'm inconvenienced at times. Um, but I try not to be on the phone when my husband is around. I try, um, you know, to um, communicate to my kids when I am on the phone with someone and say, you know, set a time limit. Be like, okay, I need 15 minutes. You know, mommy needs 15 minutes. Go set the timer and then after 15 minutes is done, you can come get me. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, and then I reserve the evenings for family time. You know, like, I'm not on the phone at night with people. That's time that I need to spend with my family, being with them. Um, and I just try, I've just learned how to find little pockets of time here and there to do what I need to do with the bones of my program. You know, I get up, I get up very early and do it. and 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 that way I can center myself and I can be ready for the day, ready to face the day, ready to greet the day, um, as Leah will say. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Sam S. Thanks to everybody who posed questions. And, of course, Leslie, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning sharing your remarkable story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps in a relationship with God. Thank you so very much. Again, the sure ID for today, 15,164. That's 15164. Let's close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.